Welcome to Elixir Outlaws, the hallway track of the Elixir community. All right. Right, all right. Getting all right, started. All right, all right. Getting started in here. Oh, I don't know. Don't let me see. This would be bad for everybody. Uh, I had, I, I decided to go with the water instead of the coffee today. Yeah. Uh, I had one coffee. That way I can, I can load up on a whole bunch of coffee right after we record and stay warm for the rest of the day since it's super yeah, cold. It was, it was cold and snowy. Yeah, I, it's snowing right now. Uh, I'm looking out the window. You know, I'm only like five or six blocks south of you, I think. Maybe yep. less. We may have to do an in-person one again to figure out how to set our audio levels. I have a, I have a little thing that will run two mics. Maybe I can bring it in and we'll see what we can do. Let's do I that also sometime. have a whole bunch of extra mics just in case. So we can figure out what's going on. It'd be nice. I like seeing people. It's nice to see people. I see live people. Oh. oh wow, that was a reference back to an old movie. Anyway. That movie's only like twenty years old. Yeah, it it it's kind wow. of kind of wild. Um, I don't know if you've see, seen pictures of Haley Joel Osment recently, but like, it doesn't look like the little kid that he did. Of course. Oh, I bet not. No, I have not. I have not seen any new pictures. I have to go look this up. Yeah. Uh, I'm I'm always amazed at what like, child actors that look like when they like the, the kid who played Anakin Skywalker. Yep. Looks. A whole lot different. It's kind of crazy. <laughs> wow. So what's what's going on in uh, in your world lately, Amos? Um, uh, you know, we're we're doing a lot of hiring. Um, I've been reaching out to a few people in the community and asking how to hire more diversely. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I'm getting great candidates, uh, but. You know, I, I'd like to have more of a diversity of candidates coming in. So, um, reaching out and I'm asking people that I know, how do I, how do we get, how do we get those resumes in the first place? Because I'm just not getting. Uh, but yeah, doing a lot of hiring, growing a lot. So yeah, we cool. we have uh, similar problems. Um, just and not even hiring with a specific intent to be. Uh, you know, to have a diverse set of hires, it's it's even just getting people to apply. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, honestly, I, I think for for people in technology, that's that's a a uh, an, an indication that if you want to switch jobs, now is a great time because you're going to have lots of options. Because <laughs> everybody's trying to hire. Everybody's trying to hire. Yeah. And you you could probably negotiate a, a much better uh, salary or benefits package than you have right now. Um, so mm-hmm. go for it if you need a change. Yeah, and I mean, you know, there's there's a lot of uh, tangible and intangible benefits to different companies. So it's and even if you don't switch, sometimes it's just nice to see what's available out there. Yeah, what what maybe your market value is or. Um, just to get practice in interviewing because that's a skill mm-hmm. that we all need to work on too. So absolutely. Yeah. So go out there and interview, but please interview with me. If you really interview with Amos. Don't practice interview <laughs> with me. Okay. 
<laughs> I don't have a lot of extra time. <laughs> At practice interviews lead to real jobs quite often, actually. Yep. So, so practice interviewing, that's fine. Um, yeah, so we've been been growing and pushing, doing a lot of live view, have some pretty exciting uh, embedded systems projects coming up, some nerves, some other things. Um, yeah. So we're looking for embedded systems people. That's um, great. And live view people. And I've been thinking a lot about live view and how to lay things out. I don't have a whole lot of opinions right now. So I don't know if you do. I don't know if that's a great I topic. Have, I my, have zero my, opinions about live view right now. <laughs> my only opinion right now is that if you're going to do live components, this is the one I've been. So you have. How many, have you done live view? Yes, I've done some. Okay. Okay. So you have live views, live components, and components. Right. right? Components are kind of dumb. Uh, and in, I don't know, might be the most recent version of live view. Component life cycles changed. Dumb components are just components. Vanilla components, maybe it's better than dumb. They Their life cycle changed. It used to still call mount and update, I believe. And now it only calls render, which changed a lot of things for me because <laughs> um, I expected mountain update to be called. Um, and then you have live components, which they can receive some update messages, but they can't do handle infos. Um, okay. They can do a handle event, but no handle info because they're, they live within the live view process, which does all the that handle infos and everything. So, the the big thing that I've run into is there's a tendency to once I need some kind of live event to make everything um, try to try to explain this. So like let's say I have a row in a table, right? Then and I have some interaction within that row that might need to deal with updates and, and things. So I might want a live component for some reason. It has to handle events. I I was having a tendency to, even if it's just like one cell in in a table in row, I would make the live thing the whole row. Because in my brain, the component level thing in my brain was, let's say it's a user table, was a user, not the user's email address or this mm -hmm. or this button like that maybe sends them an email and then says when the last time it sent them an email next to it or something like that's yeah. actually like the component and there are ways to do that not live so this is not the greatest example but the the big point was i was trying to make the live the whole row but really the smaller you can make that live and the least amount of data that is within it probably the better you are seen a tendency to almost try to recreate the DOM and the data structure of the entire DOM within the backend. Um, yeah. The data structure part of the DOM, not the actual HTML. And so if the thing that needs to change is actually like two, like two levels in, now you're going two levels in on your live component all the time mm -hmm. in order to change that thing below. But if you can make that thing the top level concern of the live component, then I'm only changing that one thing instead of trying to cascade my way down. Anyway, 
that was that was been my last few days. Wow. That's uh there there's like similar things on if you do a uh, single page apps with with stuff like React, like mm-hmm. deciding where the responsibility of of changing a particular thing is. Um and there there is always that tension of, well, like at this level, this component represents this data structure uh in its like at at, at its uh coarsest granularity. But then you like want to have an action button or something, and 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 do you do you pass the entire data structure down, or do you like try to propagate events upward and and decide that the the higher level component should handle those because it's responsible for dealing with with all the uh, the things specific to that. For instance, you said like user, then then that would be uh, a place to handle it. But uh, interestingly, like you know, a lot of the front end stuff has, has gotten to be where state management is, is so complicated um, mm-hmm. because you, you kind of, and I don't know if this is the case, if you experience this with the live view, but you kind of want to have one like ginormous state for your app. And, and then, you know, your components you know, take narrower views of that state and operate over narrower views of that state. But, mm-hmm. but since you're only, since you're updating one thing, you've kind of got to propagate those changes that happen at a really fine granularity up to the to the big state object, right? And this is the whole Redux thing, which I finally understand after like six years of hearing about it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, but, well, explain it but, to me. Uh, okay, uh, I'll try to keep it as brief as possible. The the idea in Redux is you want to minimize updates. So like what we do in Live View with sort of immutability, um, the the uh, the idea is that you take a subselection of your giant state object, and that's to to feed data into your component. Mm-hmm. And then when when some something happens that needs to mutate that global state, you submit an action. Uh, which is basically just a function. Um, it takes immutable data, it returns immutable data. So like anything that you change, you have to make copies of. This is manual in JavaScript, right? But like in Elixir, it'd be just like, ah, you just mutate the thing and like re- you know, pass back the mutated thing. It's already copied, yeah. Um, so, and 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 that's that's called on action. So like if you click something, you would submit an action to the state manager and the state manager will do that immutable transformation and then trigger all of the things that had registered that they're interested in that information to be updated. So it's sort of a, a way to like narrow the scope of of redraws. Because um, mm-hmm. if you have that that global state and you're changing it mutably and you don't know what parts of it have changed, what components need to be updated, uh, that's kind of an expensive computation um, in 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 a space that where you don't have immutable data structures. Um, so, because you'd have to do a bunch of comparisons and go like, is this thing different? How do I know? Well, I have to like walk down the whole data structure to figure out if it's changed. Um, so, so Redux is kind of working around that particular weakness. Um, but uh, back, back to, to, to live view, like one of the, one of the things that happens there or like what to your point about like making those components really fine grained 
and handling the event closest to that component rather than like bubbling up mm-hmm. um, kind of feels like that, that tension of um, that, that I, I see in front end code uh, that uses react and redux. Yeah. Like I, I frequently want to handle, you know, displaying errors. Let's see, you're trying to save a form. I yeah. want to handle those as low as I can. I want to handle the processing yeah. of that form as low as I can. So I don't have to dig into that big data structure that we have at the top level. But once it's done, I propagate that that change to the top level through some kind of messaging. Mm-hmm. But that top level, uh, what do you call the structure? No, mm-hmm. call it the data, data, uh, whatever the, the top state, level data the global state. Is. Yeah, the global state. Yeah, it's I think can be hard to update sometimes <laughs> yeah. like, because you know, in, in a lot of apps you have, you have all these different views into the data and frequently the data is quite interconnected to a point where you have to load the world yeah. to actually get some kind of, uh, uh, I don't know, like higher level information. Mm-hmm. Um, like I, I find quite often that there's some kind of like status or something like that of something that is dependent on the status of things underneath it that is then dependent on status of things underneath that yeah. that might be dependent on status of things underneath that. And if you want to not just cache it and have like, if, if it's important enough that it needs to be real time, like it needs to be accurate mm-hmm. at all, all times then you have to load the world. And so then I also get into that contention with that global state object being, well, to build this the first time takes forever. Yeah. And is there a way that I can build that piece meal wise so I can start out and say like this one thing's unknown right now. We're working our way. Mm-hmm. Back. And I think that's what the like update mount versus update callbacks buy you on the live components. But then you have to be building live components. And they they need to feed back to the global state, which then sometimes might redraw other components. And sometimes might reset that component. And I, it's a nightmare. <laughs> yeah. And I, I, I kind of, um, I keep coming back to this. I, I learned about this book and I, I may have mentioned it to you before um, in like 2014. Um, and it's it's called designing the user interface with state charts. Um, oh, I think you mentioned it once. It's it's an old book. It's out of print. Um, Say it again for everybody who's listening and for, for me, so I can write it down. <laughs> uh, designing the user interface with state charts, and I, I may have messed up some of the prepositions in that title, but um, <laughs> the uh, the idea, like, and this this is an essential thing. For, for user interfaces, I think, um, is that you, you, can't, you can't just think of the data you want to display. Like, you have to think about, um, you know, like flowcharts is, is another way to think about it. But, but um, you know, what state is your application in? And what does that imply about uh, what, what information it should be showing? And what other behaviors are accessible? And, and so state charts is the idea of like you have a state machine, but its states are hierarchical. 
So, so you, you know, for example, you, you start up your live view page and, you know, like in the mount, right. And, and you might be in a state that you want to call loading. Like uh, maybe, maybe you want to uh, display some, some UI before you even have, you know, all of, all the information loaded uh, that is relevant for the user. Um, So like that's a state and there are, you know, very few ways that you can exit that state. Uh, Basically you can exit that state by loading all the appropriate data that you need to display that. Um, But, but you could also think of, well, maybe I want to display, maybe I want to start these components and they're in the, you're like my overall state is loading and they're in their loading states too. Mm-hmm. Um, and so those are like substates. Um, but you could also, I, I think the, the best motivating example I heard, and this, this was again, back in 2014, I believe, um, was, uh, think of, think of like a, a, an autocomplete widget. Um, so, you know, the, the typical behavior we expect of an autocomplete widget is you start typing, um, and after a certain amount of time or a certain number of characters that you've typed, it starts displaying results. Mm -hmm. Um, But you can't display those results synchronously because there's like network communication going on there or, or there's like some expensive computation on the client side um, to do that search. Right. Um, So, so there are a couple of things there that, you know, you might run into where, um, you don't want to search, for instance, if they have fewer than three characters. Mm-hmm. So like That's you haven't. Yeah. 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 So so like there, there's an initial state that you're in, which is you haven't typed enough. And like you still receive these, you know, user typed events, but you don't you don't go into the well, I need to try to search until they've put three characters in. So so there's there's sort of a uh, there, there's a transition there. Right. Once they've typed three characters. What if they keep typing? Do you want to like kick off a search and have it display results and they have typed three extra characters in the meantime? You're going to show them the wrong results probably, right? Or, or, or some that will become immediately invalid. So, so there's also a, an, an aspect of when the user is typing, you need to wait until they've stopped typing for a certain amount of time. And then you submit the search. And if they start typing again, then you cancel that search if it's not completed. So like, so there's, there's all these, um, these aspects of building that. And this is not even to talk about like, how do you select something from the list, right? Uh, in autocomplete. Um, but, but there, there's all these like micro states inside these general interactions of, you know, you can even think of like, do they even have this component focused? If it's not focused, then you don't do anything, right? Uh, once they focus, then you enter the, like, let's go to the, the next state of, should we be searching or displaying results that have already been fetched or waiting for them to input? Um, so anyway, it's an interesting concept. Unfortunately, the book is very, I think, like Java-focused, like many books from the era that it was written in are. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but the concepts are, are, are generally useful, and it's not a very, very long book. Well, most of those books, like that seems like a high level concept that you might even be able to just treat the Java like some pseudocode or even mm-hmm. bypass it a lot of times and just read the words. Yep. Awesome. I'm going to have to pull that one down. When you were talking about all those microstates and loading, I was thinking of 
ways to to solve this, especially when you have like all the low level states that have to feed into that high level state, mm-hmm. is that the high level state could kick off as as loading, right? And then the low level states, when they actually get their data, they just propagate a message up saying, "Hey, I've I've got this data." And the people up above listen to that, and the ones above that listen to that. You can just pipe it all the way back up through some messages yep. when they load. So that's not a bad. I failed to do that. Now I just need to <laughs> write the code. I gotta go. Bye, Sean. I gotta go write some code. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's like that waking up in the middle of the night and having an idea and having to pull out your laptop because you know in the oh, morning, yeah, no matter what you write down, you'll never remember exactly what you were thinking. Yeah. I haven't yeah, had that rough. happen in a little while. Probably because I sleep so heavy now. I'm getting old. When I go to sleep, I'm out till 4 a.m. Yep. 4, 4.45, 4 to 4.45, almost every day now. This is my old man coming out. I just wake up. Usually because my knees or my hip hurts. Mm. <laughs> so so when do you start going to dinner at 5 o'clock? <laughs> I'm not sure. 4.30, I, I mean. <laughs> I, I now know why all the old people in the small towns that I, I lived in most of my life would be at the breakfast place at 5 a.m. drinking yeah. coffee. It's because they woke up anyway. Like, yeah. Well, nobody else is awake. Let me go find all the other geezers and drink some coffee. <laughs> yeah, my, my dad has for years gone to this. He calls it the Old Farts Club breakfast um, mm. with, with a bunch of his golfing friends. Um, every Friday, they meet up at like something crazy, like 6 a.m. But yeah, it's... Very much like, oh, yeah, they're wide awake. They're up. They've been going for a while. Time for breakfast. I think, 6 a.m. I think the fact that we said that you said crazy at 6 a.m., crazy time at <laughs> 6 a.m. means that. We, and I felt like, yeah, that's true. That is crazy that we're still both young. So, yeah, yeah I'm going to stick with that. <laughs> well, my, my main problem is going to bed too late. So, you know, there's in order to get enough sleep, I'm not usually up before 730. My main problem is that. My wife goes to bed late. Uh, I go to bed. That's my problem, too. Yeah. I'm ready to go to bed, and she's ready to talk. And I used to be the night owl of of the relationship, and then I had to wake up really early and drive really far to work. And And now you're ruined. I'm ruined. I'm ruined forever. (laughs) I'm still kind of a night owl, so I like being up, but I I know know that I'm going to have a rough time day so i try to mm-hmm. try to force myself to bed so you you had a I yeah i exhausted this topic or not yeah I, th- I think we might have uh maybe we'll come back to it next week like we did we did talk about live view a couple weeks in a row recently um because there's like there's a, a lot there elixir conf oh my gosh <laughs> <laughs> all live talks. So, so like we could switch to the other popular Elixir topic, which is testing. Sweet. Um, yeah, I, I saw this uh, great blog post. It's not very long. We'll put it in the show notes. It's, it's um, a thing that I think I've run into multiple times uh, writing Erlang and Elixir over the years. And I, I imagine you have too. And uh, the, the problem set that the, the author was talking about um was testing a process that is named, you know? So take, take for example, like you, you start up um, IEX, 
and it uh, you know it has its own supervision tree uh, for for the interactive elixir, um, and and some of those uh, name some of those processes have registered names. You know, so like their name is an atom. You can only have one of them registered under that name using Erlang's built-in process registry, right? So um, typically the way you would do this is you would start up the process, um, you know, it's like a gen server or an agent or whatever. Um, You start it up and you pass the name option to its start link function. And that makes sure that it registers, um, you know, locally as that particular atom. And you can address that that process by, by its name. Um, and so like, that's usually implicit. Like the, the, the thing that people do most often, and you know, I myself have done numerous times, um, is use the module name as the name of the process. Mm-hmm. And then like, if you're looking at observer, um, it, it's easy to go, Oh, that's the, the, um, the foo process. Well, I'll go look in the foo module for the code that runs that process. That's makes it easy to find. Yeah, 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 super easy. It's also like um, you don't have to think that hard about a name. So the problem is, how do you test this, right? Like because we 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 want we want our test suites to run fast. So more often than not, we would prefer to have our tests run in parallel. Uh, this also uh, makes it. Um, I'm sorry. I don't know where I was going with that, but, but like (laughs) this makes it hard. Like, so this is the single global process problem that so many people have talked about. Um, and that like is everybody says is an anti-pattern, but it's actually not like you, you have, you have lots of these, um, in, in any running system. Uh, it's just, you don't want everything going through them. You just want them to like be responsible for that particular kind of, uh, behavior or state. So, uh, so how do you, how do you like test this thing um, that can only have one running and you want to test in parallel? Uh, so this is, this is the, the essential problem the blog post is, is talking about. Now I, I was thinking back to years ago uh, when we would, uh, for instance, uh, like inside React at Basho, uh, we would have these uh, global processes Things like um, the 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 ring manager that handles cluster membership and assigning partitions. Um, there are a bunch of them actually, uh, and and it's like how how do you test um, how do you test this like complicated uh, process that has a lot of messages and whatnot? One thing that we did uh, several times was uh, recognize that like there are two responsibilities of the process. One is handling messages and the other is updating its internal state. And like, if you have a really complicated process, you can move that. I got this message, apply that message to my state and, you know, give me a new state. Um, And you can do that functionally, like purely referentially transparent, you know, pass a function, uh, a data structure and a message and like get a new data structure, right? That's so pretty then, easy to test. But if you're going to do that, now your test is dependent on the internal state structure, right? Because you need to know, but I guess you potentially, you may yeah. not need to know in your test, your test may not do that directly. 
Yeah, yeah, and and you may you may not care about uh, PIDs or or things like that. You may mm-hmm. so uh, you know a good example of one thing we did with that in React was um, the uh, the request state machines. So we we separated the logic of you know have I received enough. Uh, quorum responses for this particular request. That's like purely functional. You can you can say, "Hey, I got a, a read response back. Um, let's add that to my my state and and then see and you know did I receive enough? Like and and so that's that's pretty easy. And we did quick check around that and all that. But then you still like kind of have this bit over to the side, which is I'm receiving messages and I need to dispatch them to my state management module correctly. Like, um, so how do you test that? Well, taking a step back from that kind of, you know, separating the two, uh, is a a really simple solution, which is, and the the author uses the word dependency injection, but I'm just going to use default arguments. (laughs) The the author here is, uh, Herman Velasco, friend of the show, right? Yeah. Friend of the show. And it's not German until. Okay. (laughs) Well, well, we know I now. Ask. Yeah, dear, yeah, and sorry. and uh, I, I I feel bad because I actually recently learned that when I was talking about I know on on air, um, I mispronounced Eric's last name. It's not ostrich. Um, it's ostrich. So apologies to Eric, friend of the show. But and and hello, Herman. So okay, so so the it, you know we said there's this global process that we want to test. Um, it's usually registered under the module name as its name. So Hermann suggests, well, make, make the, all the calls that you would do to send messages to this process, take an argument that is the name of the process, mm-hmm. right? And you actually, you actually see this in, um, in a lot of libraries where, where you have a process surrounding a resource, for example, like a database connection or something. And the first argument to the, to the function is a PID. And that's the case where like the process isn't named, right? You, you always have to pass a PID if you want to send a message to it. So using that same pattern, but like passing a name, uh, now you can like name, you can start up a new version of this process with a unique name in your test. And, and then you can pass that name to each of the functions that you call inside your test uh, when you're trying to test the behavior of that process. So this is really great, but then there's a problem. Well, like, do you make, do you make some random ad names have to be atoms, right? Do you make some random atom inside your test? Uh, and this is the part that I thought was most insightful. Yeah. You could like every, every test where you need to test this process and start one up that's independent of all the others, you know, give it, you know, like make an atom inside that test, but you actually have in the test context that X unit gives you, you know, like if you put the, the map, uh, after your test name and like pattern match out some some parts of the context there's a there's an atom in there that's called test and it's the the function name of the test that was is being executed so you can use that name as the name of your process oh I didn't that. so i i did something very similar to this before um, okay i actually just sent you a link to it and i did what you originally said which was oh i used the test module name so i did yeah, inject the name but i used the test module name but that still made that module those individual tests couldn't really run it 
well then. Right. So I like I like that idea of using that stuff. What's the drawback? Uh, I I suppose the drawback is the the drawback is maybe you could have structured it so it doesn't rely on the name at all. And like again, the name is a default argument. So I mean you could you could have it be where you have to pass a PID. Because honestly, when you're you're doing like gen server call or like any of the agent or you know task calls, it doesn't care about whether that's an atom or a PID. Mm. Um you you pass the atom or the PID and the like the send. The, the send a message call that eventually gets gets uh, executed is indifferent to whether it's an atom or a pit. So so really, that's not a testing issue, right? That's a how you how you're structuring your system. Yeah, issue yeah. at that point because yeah, I, I mean if if you have a name, that's that's now a global state. Yep, and then you have to deal with all of the issues with global state and multiple processes. Mm -hmm. Like what happens if you try to connect two of these systems? Can I have two of them or does one of them die? Like you got to deal with that or when it crashes routing everything while it comes back up, figuring that out. Yeah, there's so if you can, take a step back and design your system without having to have a known global state, probably mm-hmm. in a better position. And then your tests are maybe simpler to write because they don't hope. care anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have in the past had great success using that start supervised function that comes mm-hmm. in XA unit. Um, yeah. Always use that. <laughs> yeah. If you can, especially because you, then you get, um, you make sure that that process goes away when your test ends. Obviously, if you're using start link, you get that anyway, because it's, you know, linked to the, the test process. Um, but start supervised puts it under the, the supervisor rather than being linked to the test yeah, process. Yeah, that way, if, because if you link it to the test process and the thing that you're testing crashes, your whole test process crashes. Indeed. Which may not be what Sometimes it makes debugging and it makes it makes the things that your test is supposed to tell you sometimes a little more, mm-hmm. a little more too. So that's why I, I, I keep using start supervised mm-hmm. so that I can see what's going on a little better. Yeah, I think the this discussion just drove home to me um, how how much how much effort, but also how much value you get out of making things testable. Like mm-hmm. putting that little effort around the edges to make sure that I can test this thing in isolation and in conjunction with other components without requiring like a whole bunch of state to be set up ahead of time or like just the amount of state that I need uh, to get the thing going and, and wired up. Um, it's it can be it can be more time consuming mm-hmm. um, to do that. Uh, I like to think that often it gives you better designs uh, because it makes you think harder about it. But sometimes you uh, want to just like bang something out and like see if it works 
Mm-hmm. And, then, and then you have to like go back and rewrite it to make it testable. <laughs> and I find that a lot of times in systems when I have created a name process, mainly it was due to I need to hurry up and get this done and I, yeah. I don't have time to think about how this should work. Um, yeah. Which probably leads to I should write more code without name processes so that I just go there first <laughs> in my yeah. mind. Uh, but it's easy to think of things as things. And so that process is a thing, give it a name but, and then send stuff to it. But it really resists fixing later to be not named. Mm-hmm. It's it's usually after you've gotten that in a few places starts to be painful to switch if you haven't done it right in the first place. Compared to if I had started out and said, I'm not going to name this thing. I'm going to figure out a place to maybe store a connection to it or pass around the pit if I need to. So like I, I have a hard time now thinking of where naming a process is actually useful outside of like spiking. Yeah. I, I think the, the, the tension comes to the fore where you you need a shared resource and it, and it's about like how do you find for how do you, how do you find that resource or find whether it exists and you need to create it mm-hmm. you know the the database connection one is an easy one to understand but but that's that's a well your single named process or resource is the name of the pool of connections not an individual connection those individual connections are unnamed like, right. but you have to, you know, you have to get one. So you have to get in the queue to receive a process and then wait for a signal that you can take it. Uh, another example I was thinking of at my previous gig, we had uh, issues where we needed to call like multiple other services and we had unique authentication tokens for each of those services that you mm-hmm. had to fetch. And those authentication tokens had expiration times. Well, you, you, what you would often see like if we deployed one of the services that used this this technique is that there would be a huge like uptick and give me a bunch of tokens <laughs> um and and you kind of want to make sure that every time you want to call from service A to service B that requires a token you reuse the token that's already been fetched instead of going to fetch it mm-hmm. um you know on on demand so well, how how do you? Well, first first I was like, well, let's let's put those in a nets table, um, and they can be reused, right? That's that's another sort of global state that can be referenced mm-hmm. by name, and that worked fine, except for when that thing expired. Like, if you had a constant amount of traffic, when that thing expires, every process that might need to get that token to do something is going to race on trying to fetch a new token and insert it into the ads table. So, so then, then the next thing is, well, how do you, how do you make sure that there's only one process trying to get that token? Well, now you have a process that you need to name for. I, I never got to implementing this, uh, but it was like halfway there uh, when I left my last job. And what what I ended up doing is using registry uh mm-hmm. because these these names were not really atoms they were like strings or like combinations of strings and other things so it was like well when you go to fetch if the if the process managing that 
token and refreshing it doesn't exist, try to spin it up under this registry with this this name. So that was a like create a child under a supervisor with this name and that child will try to race to to register, which is like a much tighter race mm-hmm. um, than everybody trying to fetch the token. <laughs> right. And you, and, you know, if you're using a third party IDP, they have rate limits on those things. This was the big problem is that we would fetch it and like exhaust our rate limit at times. So, so, so then once start, you start the process and have the process. Yeah. Go, go fetch it after it started. Right. It's the first thing it tries to do is, is fetch it. Um, and then the nice thing is in this pattern I've used multiple times where you have this like shared resource and a bunch of people trying to get it, a bunch of other processes trying to get it is that you can, that process can keep its state in a nets table. In this case, it was just like, put it under the key in the registry. Um, the token, just put it in the registry. And if that doesn't exist, then you like send a message to that process and wait. And then that process can reply all at once after it's done its work to all of the the people waiting. So it keeps a little queue, um, a list basically inside of it of people waiting for that token. Um, other, I keep saying people, it's other processes. <laughs> I, people's fine. People's fine. I people's was already fine. thinking that it, can we change the name from named process to the Highlander process? Yeah. Should I explain that joke? Is it better if I explain it? No, it's better not explained. (laughs) I told, I keep telling Keith that he was wrong. They're not better explained. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, I guess like my point of bringing that up and discussing that is this, this is a, like a trade-off you have to like a tent, a design tension you have to contend with Mm -hmm. as you're building the app is like, do I make these things independent and testable? But if they represent something that multiple pro- other processes need to use or get information about, how do I make that discoverable? And so there's this, this like named processes way at the discoverable end. There's only one of them. You can find it whenever you want to look for it, as long right. as it's you know, supervised. Um, uh, at the other end is these things are throwaway. You spin one up as you need it. You refer to it by PID. You don't care what the name is. Mm-hmm. So there's there's a there's a whole gray area in there, um, and a lot of a lot of solutions fall not at either end of the spectrum. Right. I've yeah I've had I think close to a single process where I have a process that is only allowed to live so long, and you mm-hmm. need to stand up a replacement for it while it's still running, and then start to route messages to the new one while keeping the old one. So yeah, there's a whole lot of I actually care where this is and what it is. Mm -hmm. And typically there's only one, but for a brief moment, there's multiple. And that brief moment in computer time is an eternity. So yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Those, those are much harder to deal with. I like, I like throwaway ones that I don't have to think about, but I find that rarely, rarely is that in the spectrum there. Yeah, it's usually for like one shot things you need to do on startup or something like that. Throw off a task. Even yep. a lot of those I have to keep track of. So. Yeah, sometimes I've done like uh, singleton workers with tasks, mm-hmm. but they're not named. You know, they're they're just like, well, I only have one of them. There's some other process managing that thing, like kicking it off or 
you know, monitoring it or whatever uh, for for failure. Um, but yeah, that's right, there. Are very very few use cases where you don't want to like spin up something and keep it around. I think we My exhausted this topic. I okay, think we did. <laughs> I think we did. I have a book to read. <laughs> Apparently, I have too many books to read. <laughs> yeah, me too. I have a stack right now, but uh, I'm I'm probably gonna. You've brought this book up twice, which means now's the time that if it's been brought up twice. Maybe it's now. If I if every time somebody brought up a cool book, I bought it. I would just have an infinite number of books. Mm-hmm. So if I cut that infin infinity in half, it's still infinity, but it's maybe countable infinity now at this point. So yeah, with with how rare this book is nowadays, I would definitely suggest like looking it up on WorldCat and see World if there's World. some library you can borrow it from. Uh, oh yeah, before because like I don't know that you would be able to find it. Like on Amazon or I'll check in PPL first. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Thank you, sir. Yeah. Good talking to you, Amos. Good. I think I'm going to go get some tacos. Sounds wonderful. With, uh, with some, some people here. One of them, you know, mm-hmm. Johnny, friend of the show. Friend of the show. Go get some tacos. All right. Thanks. Thanks, Sean. Later, Amos. Talk to you later.